So we're talking this morning about doubt. Um, doubt, doubt is big in our world today. Everybody is keen on doubt. Uh, everybody is a cynic, a sceptic and a doubter. It's very unfashionable to be certain about anything at all. I work with students and in my experience, the main question that gets asked of Christian students by their non-Christian friends is this, how can you be so certain? The author G.K. Chesterton described our society by saying that modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction. Certainty is out and, says Chesterton, we are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. It seems we have nothing left to doubt but doubt itself. Now that sort of doubt may be largely outside of the church. But we all know that as Christians, we have doubts as well. As I said, I work with Christian students. Uh, next week I'll be going to a conference of 400, uh, 500 Christian student leaders. And I know for a fact that the seminar on struggles, doubts and disappointments will be one of the best attended seminars at that conference. Philip Yancey has a great deal to say about doubt uh, in his book Reaching for the Invisible God, uh, which I do recommend to you. Forty pages into the 300-page book, he admits that if he asked everyone whose faith had ever wavered to stop reading, he may as well stop writing there and then. He recounts some of the heroes of the faith who really struggled with doubt. This is Martin Luther, the great German reformer. For more than a week, Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy against God. So we all know that doubt is alive and well in the Christian world. Sometimes I think we do try to pretend that it isn't so, that everything's rosy in the garden, uh, we're all resting in a serene certainty with absolute confidence. Suffice to say, the Bible does not encourage us in such self-deception. The Psalms, in particular, are sometimes painfully realistic. As our series title tells us, these are songs for the real world. They're not ditties for daydreams. And Psalm 73 is a psalm about doubt. Let's see if this is going to work. I can't really see my nice picture of a bridge, but that's okay. Psalm 73 is, is going to deal with the doubts of one particular believer. Uh, for the sake of convenience, we'll call him Asaph. That's probably his family name, but he won't mind. Now, now Asaph, Asaph has doubts. And he records here, in poetic form, the way in which his doubts first took hold of him to a really troubling extent. And then the way in which he dealt with those doubts. Now, I'm very thankful that I have a record of Martin Luther's doubts. That makes me feel much better. But I'm much more thankful that I have this record of Asaph's doubts because this is not just a piece of biography about a chap called Asaph, but this is God's word to us on the subject of doubt. This is God's way of dealing with doubt so we can learn from it. I want to look at the psalm uh, under three headings. Firstly, Asaph's doubt is the doubt of a believer. Secondly, it's the doubt of a thinker. And thirdly, it's the doubt of a worshipper. Oh, there it is. So that's where we're going. So 
So let's stop. The doubt of a believer. Let me just read the first couple of verses of the psalm again. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. See, this is not the doubt of an agnostic that we're looking at here. It's not the doubt of someone who refuses to say whether they believe in God or not. It's not really that kind of doubt that's very popular today that says you basically can't know anything at all for sure. In fact, this song about doubt starts with a real affirmation of faith. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph knows his God. He knows that God is good. He knows that he shows his kindness to his chosen people. Israel, to all those who are pure in heart. All these things he knows. I expect if we could get Asaph up here today, we can't, he's been dead for years, um, but if we could get him up here, he'd be able to say that there'd been points in his life when he'd really known God helping him, when he'd been really confident of God's presence with him. He might have pointed to the whole history of Israel as evidence that God loves his people and was determined to do them good. Asaph is a believer, so his doubts come in the context of that belief. Surely God is good to Israel, but that's the shape of a believer's doubt. I dare say uh, you recognise it from your own times of doubt. I know I do. Yes, I know. I know that God is love, but... Yeah, yeah, of course, I know that everyone who comes to God will be received. But, there is a baseline faith, a foundational faith. But somewhere along the line, the doubt still creeps in. And sometimes, no matter how firm that foundational faith is, a believer's doubts can make him feel that everything he believes is coming crashing down around him. See, even while he can say confidently that God is good to Israel, Asaph can also say, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. It's as if he were walking across a ravine on a very narrow bridge, or perhaps walking along the edge of a cliff. And because of his doubt, his feet had almost slipped. He'd almost lost his foothold. He'd almost plummeted down into the depths. This is a feeling that resonates with me, as I'm sure it does with some of you. Sometimes faith seems to be on a knife edge. For sure, we can still affirm many truths about God. We still know, in our heads at least, that God is good and that he's promised to be good to us. And yet, it feels like we could fall at any moment. If faith is the bridge that we're walking along, then our doubts are like those little bits of slippery moss that threaten to to have us sliding off and down into the ravine. And if we slip, everything looks completely black. Now I'm aware that I could be speaking to some people this morning who feel exactly that way. If you don't feel that way now, you probably will at some point. Well, take heart that this doubt is not incompatible with faith 
I know that when the doubts creep in, the temptation is always to assume that it's all up. That's it. We're in the grip of unbelief. We have no real faith. God won't accept us. But it isn't so. This psalm, as we'll see as we go on, is certainly not going to tell us that our doubt is okay and that it doesn't matter. But it does clearly tell us that even believers will have doubts. Indeed, as we'll see, only believers can have doubts like this. See, your doubt may have brought you to the very edge of falling. Your feet may feel very precarious indeed. But you have to understand that the mere fact of doubt doesn't mean that your faith is a sham. Believers have doubts. We know because this psalm records the doubt of a believer. But secondly, it shows us the doubt of a thinker. I don't know where your doubts come from. Uh, I expect every one of us could name different things that cause us to doubt God. Asaph's doubts come from looking at the world around him and really thinking about it. Let's just carry on reading from verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. See, Asaph looks about him and he sees that there are many wicked people in the world and he sees that they prosper. They're healthy, they're wealthy, they're carefree. They sin and they sin and apparently they get away with it. They put themselves at the centre of their own little universe and find that everybody else is pretty happy for them to do that. They're popular, they're influential and they scoff at God. As their wickedness increases, so does their wealth. There's no one to call them to account and they know it. They even believe that God, if he exists at all, is, is unable or unwilling to interfere in their lives of pleasure. Now I'd suggest that that way of thinking and living was not restricted to the ancient Middle East. Probably we could all name people who live like this, uh, perhaps the celebrities or politicians, the, the powerful and the wealthy. It isn't just the really obvious examples though. There are a lot of people about who don't seem to have done anything horribly sinful. In fact, they're probably very respectable. But they do live entirely for themselves and they seem to prosper for it. Well, these wealthy wicked represent one half of Asaph's dilemma. 
But the problem really only comes into focus when he compares his life with theirs. Because he has tried to live a righteous life. He really has been careful to follow God. And what has he got to show for it? Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. He's got nothing. It's got him nowhere. Where the wicked are wealthy, he's poor. Where the wicked are carefree, he's troubled by his own sin and by theirs. Now this doubt of Asaph's may not be entirely like your doubts, but I expect if we dig into it a little bit, we'll find that it comes from a similar root. The problem for Asaph is that what he knows about God and what he sees around him in the world just doesn't seem to match up. It's a matter of faith versus experience. He knows that God is good to the pure in heart. But it's not the pure in heart who prosper, it's the wicked. He knows that God hates wickedness, but the wicked aren't suffering, the godly are. His theology and his experience are clashing, and it causes him the most painful doubt. It's the same sort of doubt, essentially, that we might have when we're watching the news and we see natural disasters killing hundreds or thousands. We believe that God is good, and yet the world seems so full of evil. Or on a more personal level, we believe that God offers us a new life and freedom from sin, and yet we find ourselves sinning again and again. Or we believe that that God forgives and accepts sinners, but we don't feel very forgiven or accepted. Our experience just doesn't seem to match up with what we believe, so we begin to doubt. Do you see that this sort of doubt could only happen to a believer? If Asaph did not believe that God was good to the pure in heart, he wouldn't have struggled so much to understand the prosperity of the wicked. If we didn't believe that Jesus had died to give us freedom from sin, we wouldn't struggle to understand our continuing sinfulness. So curiously, even our doubts can be evidence of our faith. I mention that again because... Doubt can be so destructive to us if we focus on it and don't realise that true faith can exist and survive even under an apparent mountain of doubt. But this is the doubt of a thinker. Asaph is not ignoring the world around him. He's seriously reflecting on it. He's trying to work out how it can be the way it is. One anonymous cynic with, in my opinion, a higher opinion of his own wit and was really justified, once said that faith is that quality which enables us to believe what we know to be untrue. As long ago as the first century BC, the Roman orator Seneca wrote that everyone prefers belief to the exercise of judgment and thus demonstrated that for him too, faith and thinking were two completely different things that could never be reconciled. In our own day, I think one of the most widespread notions of faith is that it is a leap in the dark. You're required to stop thinking, switch off your brain, 
I don't know if you have a switch on the side of your head. Uh, I do if I'm ever not thinking, just hit the side of my head and it'll come on. Switch off your brain and just jump for it. Jump into the darkness. For a believer, it's thought, anything that seems to contradict their faith is just ignored. Someone with faith is like a horse with blinkers on. They can't see the things that seem to, to count against their belief. Well, not so with Asaph, and I hope not so with us either. He doesn't ignore the fact that the world just doesn't seem to tally with his belief. He doesn't just uh, talk himself into believing impossible things. You may remember the Queen of Hearts in Alice of Wonderland could believe six impossible things every day before breakfast. That's not what he's about here. He sees the problems and he faces up to them. I venture to suggest that this is real faith. Not a blind acceptance of things in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, but a questioning and thinking search for the truth that proceeds from the basis of trust in God. I think it is immature faith that's able to just ignore the apparent prospering of the wicked or the terrible evil that happens in the world or all the other things that cause us to doubt. But faith is only going to mature if it sees and acknowledges all of these terrible things, recognises how much of a challenge they really are, and then determines to know the truth. That's the path Asaph took. He was a believer, and he was also a thinker. But thirdly, and, and certainly most importantly, he was a worshipper. Let's read the rest of the psalm from verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes... So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell all your deeds. Now in this section we see Asaph's conflict really come to a head. He feels that he cannot speak out about his doubts because if he does, he may cause others to stumble. So he keeps it bottled up inside him, tries to work it all out and he describes the whole process as oppressive to him. Again, this is a feeling that I can identify with and maybe you can too. It's that kind of claustrophobic feeling as the doubts seem to close in and almost smother the life out of you. 
Oppressive is exactly the word for it. But Asaph doesn't spend all of his time alone with his own thoughts. At some point, he goes into God's sanctuary. He goes up to worship. He deliberately takes his eyes off himself and lifts them to God. Probably, as an Old Testament believer, he goes up to the temple, to the place where God has promised his presence will be. The detail of what he does isn't told us. It isn't important. The point is that he worships. He deliberately and consciously goes to offer praise, worship and adoration to God, even in the midst of his doubts. I wish I had um, an extra half an hour to, to talk about what it means for a New Testament believer to go into the sanctuary of God. Um, that's another sermon and, and possibly a, another series of sermons. Suffice to say that, that Jesus in the New Testament says that he is the fulfilment of the temple. So if we want to go up to the sanctuary, we go to Jesus. We go to him, not to any particular place, but to the person of the Lord Jesus. Asaph goes up to worship. My guess would be that this was not an easy thing for him to do. Often the last thing we want to do uh, when we're oppressed by those claustrophobic doubts is to worship. We just don't feel like it. If that's a struggle uh, for you, do try and get hold of last week's sermon. Because that was a fantastic reminder that we worship God not for how we feel, but for who he is. He always deserves it. And it's vital for us. When the doubts are wrapped around us, God is obscured. We just can't see him. And a conscious turning away from those doubts to God himself is so important if we want to catch a clear view of him again. Asaph does get such a clear view as he worships and it leads him to see two things. Firstly, he sees beyond the apparent prosperity of the wicked in the present and realises that at the end of the day, they won't prosper. Note, when God decides that this is the time to act, they'll disappear, just as a dream disappears when you wake up. Their end will not be good. They seem to be getting on now, but it will not always be that way. And secondly, as he worships, Asaph realises that this very act of worship that he's performing now is the answer to his doubts. He can come into the sanctuary. He can come into genuine fellowship with the God who made the universe. He can offer praise to him that is accepted. The wicked person can't do that. How can Asaph envy the wicked? What have they got to compare to what he has? At the end of the day, he's able to say, my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How does worship deal with our doubts? Well, it enlarges our vision. Very often, when we begin to doubt, it's because we've lost sight of the big picture. Then everything gets out of proportion. Our doubts seem to grow and grow and grow in significance until we've got a mountain of doubts that we just can't get over and can't see around. They take up our whole vision, all of our mental energy. But when we worship, 
We're deliberately turning away from that mountain of doubt, lifting our eyes up to the God of heaven. See, when we doubt, we start to see everything, even God, in the context of our doubts. So we, we start from, from our struggles and doubts, and they, they seem enormous. And then, then we think about the, the wider world, and, and the problem is, is huge, because we see the whole of the wider world in the context of our doubts. And then when we finally get around to thinking about God, he seems so small, constrained by our doubts. Sometimes he seems powerless or uninterested. That must have been the way it seemed to Asa. You see, he started by observing the prosperity of the wicked and the poverty of the righteous. Everything else he saw had to somehow fit into that problem. If the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, then surely God is either powerless to stop the situation, or he just doesn't care. That's the way our doubts threaten to take us. But now Asaph the worshipper has reversed that process. He starts with God, and he sees his big picture plan. He sees that God is good, that God is powerful. He sees that ultimately God's plan is that the wicked will perish. And he sees that the thing most to be desired is that relationship with God that he enjoys and will enjoy forever. Then he can work back down to his doubts from there. See, in the context of that great God and that great plan, the doubts unravel. It isn't that the problems go away. The wicked are still wicked and still happy. The righteous are still poor and still struggling. But it makes sense. And Asaph is able to say that God is good and powerful and will one day sort the situation out. That's his final statement of faith. Those who are far from you will perish. But as for me, it is good to be near God. So here is our God-given strategy for dealing with doubt. Firstly, we're not to despair, wrongly thinking that our doubts somehow invalidate our whole trust in God. It isn't so. Doubt is a part of the life of faith. And we're not to ignore our doubts, wearing mental blinkers that refuse to think about anything that seems to threaten our faith. We're called to live in the real world, with all the real problems and doubts that that will lead to. But we are to worship. We are to put God first in our thinking. And I want to suggest that if we worship God at the very point of our doubt, very often the doubt will unravel. Do we doubt God's goodness? Well, worship him for the goodness that you know he has shown. Worship him for Jesus, for his death and resurrection for you. Worship him for his ultimate plan to restore a good creation. Make sure you actually worship, rather than just thinking things over to yourself. Make God an active partner in what you're doing. And your doubts will come into perspective. Perhaps they're not as insurmountable as you thought. Do we doubt God's power? Well, worship him. Pray prayers of thanksgiving. Sing songs of praise for all of the power that he has shown in creating the world, in calling what is out of nothing, in redeeming his people, in raising the Lord Jesus from the dead. 
Worship him for his power and see if your doubts can stand up against the truth animated by the power of praise offered in the Spirit. Or or perhaps we doubt his willingness to receive sinful people like us. Perhaps we struggle to believe that God loves us. Well, worship him. Praise him for all that you know he has done to show his love to you. Praise him for sending his son Jesus into the world to die for sinners. Praise him for making that incredible sacrifice to make it possible for sinful people to come to him. Worship him for all that and you attack the root of your doubt by taking your eyes off your own unworthiness and fixing them on the God who freely offers complete acceptance. We don't worship to make ourselves feel better. We worship because God is worthy of worship. But as we worship, God is gracious to us, builds us up and establishes our faith. God is sovereign and can use even our doubts to achieve his good purposes. And his ultimate good purpose for us is to give us the ultimate good, a perfect and intimate relationship with himself. He wants us all to be able to say with Asaph, Whom have I in heaven but ye? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. God make us worshipping people, honest people, and people who can truly say, I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Amen. We're going to sing now. Uh, Great is thy faithfulness to lift our own eyes to the sovereign Lord God. And this, um, this uh, hymn is actually based on, on Lamentations chapter 3, which makes it even better, because if you read the book of Lamentations, you'll realise that that book, that whole book, is, is the prophet Jeremiah dealing with his own doubts. And this is the point where he comes to worship and realises that God is good. Let's praise the Lord.